So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, i.e. demons, which depends on demons rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. What a statement. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were circumcised. Now verse 11 is kind of confusing and I'll talk about it in greater detail in just a moment. But in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us how much of our sins? All our sins. All our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, i.e. the demons, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. What a passage. We begin this morning with a question that may seem silly to some of us. Uh, We talk about how much we love the city of Boise, how beautiful it is, how clean and relatively safe it is. Are there demons here in Boise? Of course, perhaps there are demons in India and Africa or in the dark city streets of America's larger cities, Chicago with her homicide rate, Boston, New York. But are there demons in Boise? Do we even really consider that as a possibility? And certainly a materialist says no. A materialist, well, what is that? A materialist is simply a man or woman who believes that physical matter is the only fundamental reality of the universe. And this is, of course, the dominant view in academic circles today. All that the universe contains is energy and matter, and therefore these two Properties alone are sufficient to explain all of human experience, the existence of life, why there is something rather than nothing. Um, And and if you're here today and you're not a Christian yet, the, the chances are that at the very least you may lean towards materialism. You are skeptical about the presence of a supernatural world. And frankly, you, know, you may not believe in demons because we've been told some repeatedly intelligent people don't believe in demons. Uh, well, if I just described you, I want you to consider this story. I want us all to consider this story. It occurred, true story, it occurred back in 1940. A young man enters a movie theater in Manhattan The year before, at the age of 32, this young man had released 
his complete poems. That's a pretty bold stroke of literary confidence. Your complete poems at the age of 32. He was immediately hailed as one of the most significant and important poets in the Western world. He was also known as one of the most articulate and prominent spokesmen of Marxism in, that, in his day. All of this, again, by the age of 32. Well, in 1940, he walks into a movie theater in a predominantly German section of Manhattan. And if you remember back in those days, before they showed movies, before there was such a thing as movie previews, that were you know, showing us movies that are upcoming, back in those days, what did they show at the, at the preview of movies? They showed the news, right? And particularly news about the war. Uh, the, the, uh, I think the, the name of it was Scenes from the Front. And so on this particular day, in this particular movie, they were showing the Third Reich uh, head into Poland and begin their systematic cleansing of uh, Poland, uh, arresting and rounding up the Jews and the gypsies and other undesirables. And he's sitting here in the German section of Manhattan, and all of a sudden, the, the people around him are standing up, and they begin to yell, kill them, kill them. And here it is, it's, it's Manhattan, it's America, it's America in 1940, kill them. And so this young Marxist poet exits the movie theater, and he's shaking, and he's trembling, and he says, what did I just witness back there? Oh my God, I've never seen anything like that. There's, there's something going on back in that movie theater that my materialism cannot account for. There is some inexpressible inhuman evil, and I swear that there's some powerful spiritual force pervading and influencing the spirit of the people and the mob. And so writing in his journal later that night, he said, quote, Nothing in my materialist perspective could have explained the witness, the evil that I witnessed that evening. And to much of the, the complete shock of the intellectual world and the scandal of his contemporaries, W.H. Auden converted to Christianity at the age of 33. Have you ever heard of Auden's conversion? Maybe a few of you, it's, it's the cool, one of the coolest conversion stories, modern conversion stories um, that I, I can think of. And it's ironic, it's, it's wonderful and it's ironic because you know how most people use the existence of evil in this world to justify disbelieving in God's existence, right? Isn't that what we hear? Because their things are so bad, there, there must not be a God. But in the case of Auden, he determined that actually it's the presence of evil that speaks for the existence of God, that there must be something supernatural, a supernatural evil out there to explain all that is wrong with this world. C.S. Lewis, he said that there are two equal and opposite extremes that we can go in regard to demons one is to disbelieve in their existence entirely. The other is to have an unhealthy obsession in them. Of those two extremes, which one does, does, uh, do we normally go towards? Yeah, we disbelieve in their existence, don't we? And so as, as I heard a pastor remark this week, we don't want to say that everything is Satan and demons, but we dare not say nothing is Satan and demons 
what we must do is we must acknowledge that there is a world behind this world. There is a world that we do not see that impacts and affects the world that we do see. There is behind this world very real, very powerful, fallen, angelic, demonic spirit beings which in verses 8 and verse 15 of our passage this morning, uh, Paul tells us something very, very important. Um, something we rarely think about, but it has a huge effect on this world. And before I tell you what it is, I want to illustrate its effects. Uh, I read about this this week. There, there were four scholars who, uh, who, what are their names? James Lindsay, Helen Pluckrose, Peter Bogesian, and then I forgot to write down the fourth name, but four scholars who have sent in fake articles to leading academic journals in America. Their stated mission is to, quote, expose how easy it is to get absurdities and morally fashionable political ideas published as legitimate academic research. To date, these four scholars, by sending in fake papers, have been able to get seven of them published in academic peer review journals. In one of them, they argued that the best way for white men to check their white privilege at the door of the college classroom is to sit on the floor of that classroom with chains around their, their legs and arms and sit there silently and, and not say a word. You know, check your privilege at the door and then some. And that was published. But that wasn't even the craziest paper they, they got published. The craziest was they took a 3,000-word excerpt. And this, is, this has happened within the last 12 months, by the way. They took a 3,000-word excerpt of Mein Kampf, Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf, and they, they changed the words. They translated it from German uh, to English, but they changed the words, the words wherever it said German and Jew, they changed to cisgendered male and non-gender binary. And they, they published it basically in the language of intersectionality. And it was published in a leading academic journal as an example of cutting-edge research. Mein Kampf! as intersectionality. How did we get to this place? You find yourself asking that question all the time, especially if you're in your 60s, 70s, and 80s. How in the world did we get to this place? What, 20 years ago, nobody ever would have agreed to something that obviously wrong and nonsensical. How did those ideas or that idea become so popular so fast in our culture? How did our culture change so quickly? How did that idea and those ideas become a thing that cannot even be critiqued or challenged or debated? For any debate on these ideas are simply, is simply not tolerated. Um, verse 8 tells us why, friends. Uh, it is demonic. Here's what Paul says back in verse 8. He says, The many of the false ideologies and philosophies of this world have demonic origins. They are inspired by demons. 
They are empowered by demons and they are used by demons to take over the collective mind of a people and a culture and a nation. Now, you, you say that, uh, Brad, you're just, you're finding a demon. You're making the same mistake that Lewis warned about. You're finding a, a devil behind every, every corner. Am I really though? We see it very clearly in, in other societies, do we not? Can't, can't you see the demonic in 1940s Germany? As the tidal wave of Nazism sweeps over Bavaria? Uh, can't you see the demonic in the Roman Empire of the first century? Paul would absolutely say that demons were behind the powers and the principalities, the economic systems, the social and political realities of the Roman Empire in his day. And he would say they control not only the behaviors of individuals, but of the whole community, communally. And I think it is easy to see it in America today. Some of the absurdities. Uh, we, we rightly champion no child left behind. And yet in the last 40 years, we've aborted 60 million of them. We do this so that we can ensure that people can have sex with whoever they want, whenever they want, however they want, with no apparent or seeming consequences. We are... Uh, purportedly the greatest nation in the world, and yet we take more antidepressants than all of the rest of the world combined. We don't believe in gender anymore, apparently, but we champion women's rights. <laughs> I'm not saying something against women's rights, but, but doesn't that seem an incongruity? Uh, we are spiritual, but we are not Religious, the number one descriptor when they do the surveys, I am spiritual but not religious. And yet the Bible does not value generic spirituality. The Bible says there is a Holy Spirit and there are unholy spirits. And in one of John's letters, he says you are to test the spirits to determine if they are from God. To, as many people do, open themselves up to the spiritual realm. Um, that's very unwise and very dangerous. It's like saying, I I'm going to trust the first person I meet on the street. <laughs> Are they a good person or a bad person? Three times in the Gospel of John, Jesus said that the devil is the ruler of this world, which has to mean that many of the spirits in this world are decidedly malevolent. Uh, Look in the book of Acts. Have you ever noticed when you read about the gospel spread through the Roman Empire of that day, how often there was a mob that, that stood up, that rose up? I really, I believe the mob mentality, clearly in the book of Acts, is, is also demonic. Um, messages that are anti-Christ, anti-Bible, anti-reason. The mob throughout the book of Acts will shout at Paul and throw him in prison and try to uh, destroy him. That's not accidental. It's spiritual. And Paul, without a doubt, would say there are dark spiritual powers out there behind businesses and corporations and cities and movements and governments and countries. And we know this in part because there's a great deal of fear today. Many people, how many people are really, are not afraid to stand up and speak against the philosophies and the ideologies of America today? We're afraid. 
We're afraid of being stigmatized. We're afraid of being bigotized, if such a word exists. We're afraid of losing our jobs. People are afraid. As one author puts it, the devil is a master deceiver. And here in the Western world, he has committed the perfect crime. You say, well, what is the perfect crime? Yes, he has committed it. He has kidnapped an entire civilization and nobody realizes it yet. See to it that no one takes you captive. Let me say something briefly then about verses uh, 11 and 12, and then I'll get on to the good part of the sermon, (laughs) the good news of the sermon. Then I'll get on to the spiritual storyline of the Bible um, as I was taught it in seminary and heard it powerfully expressed this week. But in verse 11, you have to remember the majority of these Colossian Christians that he's writing to were, were not Jewish by heritage or right. They were, they, uh, they were Gentiles, but they were being told by these false teachers. We'll go into greater detail next week of what they were specifically being taught. But they were, they were being told, as was the case in many of their early churches, that you must be circumcised in order to be saved. In verse 11, I think we have to understand verse 11 in that context because here in verse 11, in a very rhetorically, creatively uh, powerful metaphor, Paul says, no, you, must, you don't need to be circumcised to be saved. Why? Because you, you've already been circumcised. And here he uses the metaphor of the circumcision of Christ is his way, I think, of describing the cross what is circumcision? Circumcision is, is the, it's the cutting away, the cutting off of the flesh. It's, it's the sharp instrument that cuts and leads to blood and is thrown off. Is that not what happened to Jesus? He was cut off. He bled. And Paul's argument here, if you pay close attention, is that when he was circumcised on the cross, you were too. By virtue of your spiritual union with Christ, you were cut off from your fleshly way of life that you used to engage in. He says, you were circumcised and all of that is signified in your baptism. Jesus, was di- Jesus died. He was cut off. He was buried. He is risen again. And you, were di- you died and you were cut off and you were buried and you are risen again to new life. And so you, he says to his church, you can be assured that in Christ and in Christ's gospel, you have everything that you need. You don't need circumcision. You don't need the prayer of Jabez. You don't need the word of faith movement. You don't need the prosperity gospel. What an increasing, what an amazing, incredible description That in Christ, you have everything that you need, especially in Christ's cross. So that being said, let me give to you uh, the Bible's spiritual storyline. In the beginning, God made angels to be his ministers and messengers These angels were to serve in God's presence and to go out from his presence to uh, care for and serve the creation. But the Bible tells us there was one angel who became proud in his heart and decided God shouldn't get the glory. He should get the glory. 
God shouldn't tell him what to do. He should tell God what to do. We should not and will not live under your rule, God, he said. And he asked aloud, who is with me? One third of the heavenly host, one third of the angels joined him and said, we are with you. And together they declared war on God with the hopes of of overthrowing God and becoming their own gods. But of course, they were decisively defeated and one third of the heavenly hosts who had joined with Satan were cast out of heaven into the earth. Now we do not know when this took place. Uh, We're not given all of the details of how this took place, but the Bible certainly cryptically indicates that this did take place in the past uh, prior to Adam and Eve's being uh, created on earth because it's clear that Satan was down here uh, when the garden was created. Satan is the great deceiver, as I said already, He came down to Adam and Eve, and he deceived them in his attempt to destroy them. Um, Satan hates all that God has made. Satan uh, is very much like in the Lord of the Rings. You remember how the orcs, orcs love to spoil and despoil everything that is good and pure and right and lovely in Middle-earth. And Sauron is is the dark power who's who is behind the orcs and he desires to be the king and to rule middle earth it's a very good description by tolkien of the spiritual uh, battle that is here um so they come and they deceive Adam and Eve. And, and then God comes and he says, there is no possibility of salvation for you, Satan, or for you, de- for you demons, but I will save the people. I will raise up a savior from Eve's descendants. And in Genesis 3.15, it says, from the seed of Eve will come a king. You, the serpent, will strike at his heel and harm him, but he will crush your head under his boot. And there will be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Between you know, two lines of people, uh, sons of the light and sons of the darkness. And we see, we see it immediately with Adam and Eve's sons, uh, Cain and Abel. Where one is aligned with Satan and one is aligned with God and one slays the other. And on and on throughout the rest of Genesis, there's this battle that rages between the kingdom of the light and the kingdom of darkness. Throughout all of the Old Testament, you have these battles that continue. Bloodshed and war between kingdoms and nations. Evil spirits behind these nations and kings. And all throughout the Old Testament, there's this battle waging. We see bloodshed and rage between the, the sons of God and the sons of devil. Enter in Jesus Christ. He was born into the world by the Virgin Mary in so doing, as a virgin, he was, uh, she was the second Eve. He was born into the world a king, though the world did not know him, for he was born as a pauper. But by the age of 30, the king was ready to be unveiled. And he recruited for himself 12 disciples. We, we could call them 12 soldiers whom he trained for three years in spiritual battle. 
And really, the, the whole battle of the Old Testament becomes in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, determined, it, uh, it, it boils down to Jesus and these 12 disciples walking the dusty streets of Galilee. That cosmic battle comes to the streets of Galilee. And, and there, they are fighting the evil one. They're casting out demons. They are... Uh, they're healing demonic sicknesses. They're teaching and preaching the word of God. When Jesus preaches sometimes, demons will call out to him in, uh, in hatred and anger. Um, so the gospels tell us that it's really a story of war. For three years, the war of the king rages in Galilee until it finally comes where? To the city of Jerusalem, to the place where, we talked about at the very beginning of our service to Mount Zion, to the, the city of the king. And this city, is, this city should welcome her king into her midst. He comes on the back of a donkey, which was a very clear symbol to them that your king is coming. Oh, throw, open, throw open wide your gates for your king is here. And yet what does the city do? When given the opportunity to free their king from the sentence of, of death, they, the, the crowd yells out, what? Crucify. Because Satan, it says in the Gospel of John, had filled, had entered into their hearts. Now the city harbors Jesus' bitterest of enemies. And even among his 12 soldiers, one of his closest allies turns out to be a traitor. His name is Judas Iscariot. He aligns himself with Satan and he agrees to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which he does in an olive grove. What happens next? Jesus is arrested. Satan and the demons have the impression that they are winning this war. Jesus is captured. They spit on him. They pluck his beard. They beat him. They flog him. They falsely charge him. They crucify him. Remember, crucifixion was the worst form of torture you could inflict on a human being. It's very rare in that day that they would crucify women. There, there are a few examples of that in the historical record. But whenever they would crucify a woman, they would always turn her face and her body backwards so that she would face the cross so they would not have to see the torturous expression on her face. And if you remember, most of the time when people were crucified, it was not lifted up on a high cross, but it was on a very low cross, right off the ground, so that you could walk up to the face of the crucified man, look him straight in the eye, and spit on him. The crucified man would pass in and out of consciousness, struggling for breath. When his unconscious body would slouch on the cross, he could not breathe, so he would have to strain his, his ribbed cage upward, and he would come back into consciousness and, and take in a, bra a, a breath. This could go on, history records, for as long as nine days. Nine hellish days of dehydration, delirium. Um, off of the body would be dri dripping... Um, Large amounts of blood and of sweat, of tears, of urine, of feces, because you cannot have your body, you know, control its bodily functions. Some people who are crucified tried to hasten their death. They would just try and slouch on the cross 
to asphyxiate more quickly. So what the Romans did, apparently, is for many of the crosses, they began to, to tack on seats underneath the buttocks so that you, one can no longer simply easily uh, a slouch and, and die quickly. And then after they died, the bodies were just often discarded. Some historians record that occasionally a stray dog would bring in a foot or a hand into the city afterwards. Friends, I go, in, I go into this graphic detail to help, you, to help you remember that this is what the demon-controlled powers were doing to the Son of God. Jesus is dying The demons are cheering. Satan is celebrating. They are planning to kill the king to fulfill the the very thing that they they started in the very beginning. To take over the the place, the kingdom of the universe and, and to enslave it all because to the victor go the spoils. It was for that purpose. It was to enslave it all. I, I, if we could... If we could only understand what war was in the ancient world. I mean, many of us, quite a few of us, probably have never shot a gun before. We have, we have not killed anything more than a mosquito or a fly. The, those of us who uh, are sportsmen, we've certainly never killed another human being. And very few of us have gone off to war. And even war today... I mean, it seems as though war is now being fought at a distance where you kill your enemy with bombs and drone strikes. But think for just a minute, what was war like in the ancient world? When you marched out of your city, what were you fighting for? You were fighting for your wife and your kids. You, you knew that day that if you didn't win the field of battle, your wife would be raped, your kids would be enslaved, everything that you ever owned would be taken, everything, everybody who you hold as dear and precious would be, would be taken and despoiled. And so when you marched out of a city, you knew that you were fighting for everything that mattered to your hearts. Men, can you feel that? Can you understand why you would give yourself to such bloodshed because you were fighting for your legacy. You were fighting for everything that you love because to the victor go the spoils. And so it was that Satan desired to enslave everything and he believed he would do so with this bloodbath, with this ceremonial execution of the king on the cross. I tell you, I, I wonder, I really wonder if one day in heaven, we will, like God will, I I don't know, do a movie, allow us to see back to Good Friday and to actually, you know, roll the tape and see what was actually happening there. I wonder if that will be part of heaven. Um, And if he won't, if he won't do a filter across the movie screen where he peels back not only the visible, but he allows you to see the invisible. He allows you to see that as Jesus is hanging there, I truly believe this, as Jesus is hanging there, there are tens of thousands and millions of demonic creatures that are circling him, that are jeering him, that are 
you know, mashing their swords and, and laughing and hitting their shields. If you've ever watched Lord of the Rings and the, the great final battle uh, before the Black Gates of Mordor, when all the orcs and all the Easterlings and all the trolls all come out through the gates of Mordor and you have Pippin and Merry and Gandalf and Aragorn, they're, they're outnumbered 10,000 to one. And all of the blackness sw- swirls around them almost like a tidal pool, and they make their last stand a little outcropping of, of, uh, of rock. And around them, they are just surrounded for as far as can be seen, all of the forces of evil. If we could see Golgotha on Friday, I am certain that's what we would see. But there is one very important a figure in the story who is recorded for us in the Gospels. He is a Roman soldier. And he is no friend of Jesus Christ. He was probably one of the soldiers who minutes before had gambled with dice in order to see who would get to take the last possessions of Jesus Christ, his tunic, his garment. This is probably one of the Roman soldiers who put wine vinegar on a sponge and on a hyssop branch and put it up to the, to the mouth of Jesus. They did that, as I hope you know, not as an act of mercy, but it's a way to prolong their life and to prolong the torture and prolong their punishment. At the foot of the cross is a Roman soldier. And when Jesus breathes his last breath, do you remember what that Roman soldier said? What did he say? He said, this man is the son of God. What changed his mind about Jesus? It was after Jesus cried aloud, it is finished. See, when we, we think of it as finished, uh, we think of it as this poor, pathetic exhale of a man who's kind of giving out his last breath. It is finished. It was no such thing. <laughs> it was a triumphant shout. It is finished. And this Roman soldier recognized it for what it was. The voice of triumph. The voice of victory. Hallelujah. Come on, people. <laughs> am I just too loud? Am I, am I too demonstrative today? I, I can't help it. It's a, it was the victory shout. And he recognized it as such. And if we, if we could take the movie cam, camera and videotape the face of the demons at that moment, they had to be severely perplexed. <laughs> They couldn't understand this. How, I thought we killed him. I thought we had won. How is it, how is it that he can, he can be shouting triumphantly? And they didn't understand. But they shuddered in terror. How was it that Jesus won that battle? The answer is found in the titulus above his head. The, the titulus was the charge that was made against the criminal that was nailed to the cross above his head in the case of a Roman crucifixion. It was a charge that said, for all these reasons, we are crucifying you because you are guilty, guilty, guilty. The titulus above Jesus Christ's head read, the king of the Jews. And Pontius Pilate wrote that as a way to mock the Jews because they, 
They said that he is no such king. But the devil's friends knew that that's exactly what he was. How ironic that the titulus, the devils, that was why they crucified him. It was because they wanted to kill the king of the Jews. It was because they wanted to kill the son of Adam, the son of Abraham. So I, again, I ask you the question, um, how could their plans have backfired so badly? Why didn't Satan win? And in the words of C.S. Lewis, we find a perfect expression of it. He says, there was a deeper magic at work. Amen? The demons thought that they were crucifying the king. What they were actually crucifying was your sins. Unbeknownst to Satan, God the Father had laid our sins on the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who we declared as worthy earlier in the service, so that sin might be condemned in the flesh of Jesus. Look in the, in the book of Romans. That's exactly what Paul writes. So that sin might be condemned. Whose sin? Your sin. So that it might be condemned in the flesh of Jesus. And so can you look with me then, please? I'm almost done. At the end of verse 13. And let us read this together. Right after God made you alive with Christ. Let's read this together. At the end of verse 13. He forgave us all our sins. Jesus forgives how much of our sins? All our sins. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. That's a lot of sin. <laughs> Everything you have ever said or done or failed to say and do, Jesus substitutes himself. He forgives us all our sins. Verse 14, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Jesus was stripped. He was humiliated, right? He was naked up there. They were crucifying the king. And Paul says in verse 14, Oh no. No, who was stripped and left naked and humiliated? He says, The powers and authorities, the demons, they were humiliated. And Jesus Christ made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. I don't know how much the demons understood this on Good Friday or how much they had to wait till Sunday to figure it out. But the evil powers lost their grip on us, friends. Satan suffered his most decisive and bitter defeat at the cross. And so let me conclude with just, maybe I should cut it down to one thing, but <laughs> two things. Um, would you never, would you please... Never let yourself get to the point where this is no longer awe-inspiring. Okay, maybe I was too histrionic this morning, and maybe not. <laughs> Will you never allow yourself to get to the point where you can read these words and not make your soul sing? <laughs> 
Because this is the greatest thing that has ever happened. This is the most noble, wonderful, triumphant thing that ever happened. And you can look around. Go ahead, fathers. Look at your sons and daughters right now. You know why he did this? Is so that they would not be enslaved. So your, your, wife, your wife would not be enslaved. Your friends would not be enslaved. He says, I did this so that I would set you free from bondage. This is the greatest thing. And then secondly, please take up the fight. Uh, the battle has been won. The war is not over. <laughs> please take up the fight. That's what Paul was saying to us in Ephesians 6. That's what we sang about earlier today. I think one of the most devilish things the devil does in the world today is he makes us feel like he's the victorious general and Jesus is the conquered man. It just doesn't feel like we're on the winning side, does it? And we become mired in the fact or we tell ourselves this fact that nothing will really get better in the world or nothing will get better in my life or in my marriage or in my job. I can't change. He can't change. She can't change. It sounds as though, man, the devil's in charge. Those are devilish words when the reality is oh so different. The evil powers lost their grip on you at the cross. You were delivered into a new kingdom and a new family. And so it is ours to live as the victors in battle with the unseen powers, confident, unafraid, and clear-headed. Uh, your life is part of a cosmic battle, friends, and your victory was assured when Jesus stripped them and humiliated them. So I say to you, fight on confident, unafraid, and clear-headed, and show him that he is the defeated one. Amen.